1: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this programme, I'm talking to Danny Dorling about inequality and its consequences.
0: Can you imagine trying to run Britain if you had never gone to a normal state school, if you had always been chauffeured everywhere and never used public transport, if you'd never had to worry about money at all, or the idea of actually having to get a job because you have a trust fund, you don't need to get one. How hard it would be to think about how most people's lives work and if you think about that I think it's easier to understand how our politicians have got things wrong because we're asking a strange set of people to do an almost impossible job about something they know so little about.
1: Danny Dorling is Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. In his latest book, Peak Inequality, Britain's Ticking Time Bomb, he argues that inequality is the political issue of our time. Almost all rich countries in the world are more economically equitable than the UK and the US, Danny writes in the introduction. Inequality causes social harm in mental and physical health, in education, employment and happiness. And, perhaps worst of all, it's been normalised. Many people accept that unfair is just how things are. Danny himself grew up in the city where he now works. A middle-class boy who attended school in a working-class area he had no desire to go on to Oxford University, whose students struck him as obnoxious and overprivileged. Instead, he went to the university furthest from his home in England, Newcastle, and subsequently taught at a number of other universities. Then, in his mid-forties, he returned to Oxford to take up the chair in geography. Oxford University is made up of immensely wealthy landowning colleges. Over 40% of its undergraduates attended private schools. The university is not well integrated in the city. Danny has written, almost all English cities are remarkably divided, but Oxford is divided in its own special way. So I put it to Danny when we met that his university exemplifies many of the problems in his book.
0: So it does exemplify. I mean, the, the educational divides in the city are probably the widest of any city in Europe. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to t- tell me a city that's more education divided, even just between the secondary schools. The colleges, of course, are also divided. I mean, it, the fascinating thing is there are so-called poor colleges. You're in one now. And it doesn't look poor if you've We're sitting
1: in a very shiny new multi-million pound building, I should yeah, say. Yep. Yeah. And in a poor college.
0: And there are rich colleges with endowments that if they carry on growing at the rate they're currently growing, they will own the planet within a hundred years. Which is a ridiculous situation to be in. The university tries remarkably hard over its undergraduates, so roughly forty percent, maybe forty-one, are private remarkably better it has to be said than Durham and Bristol and so on that nobody ever mentioned so I'll make sure to mention it and you know when I went to Newcastle I mean the, the shock was finding Newcastle was 80% private school and and may still not be that far off it but you know having said that the children who arrive from state schools to Oxford tend to arrive from the best state schools disproportionately grammars or the comprehensive and extremely expensive area and they are the children of people who have done very very well. Oxford helps explain England. Everywhere I have worked, Newcastle, Bristol, Leeds and Sheffield, have set themselves up as mini little versions of Oxford. And it was never clear. I never understood why there was a senior common room. You know, all this kind of thing. Why are most of the management team got Oxford and Cambridge degrees? And suddenly coming here makes it clear um, how the country works. And... I think also it's much easier to understand Westminster and politicians. The university doesn't understand the city it's in. i I've very been calling it a town and a city. It's, it's a city which, which, to get to its cathedral, you have to know you're allowed to walk through a college, which doesn't make it clear that you're illegally allowed to walk through the college to get to the cathedral of the city. Most undergraduates don't get much further than the JCRs or the very bottom end of the Cowley Road. So you can happily spend three years here and only see a quarter of the city. The academics have come in from elsewhere. They're still advised to buy houses in areas of the city which are ridiculously expensive and advised against living in areas that might have been slightly dangerous in the early 80s but now their whole thing is gentrified. And there's also this great sense of entitlement of we are the best. We should get more funding. It's in the interest of the country that we do well. And we go out and we find the golden children, uh, the ones with the special ability and potential, this word that Oxford is is continuously using. And by plucking out these golden children and educating them so very well, this will help everybody else and we will create wonderful politicians.
1: So it's kind of at the apex of a bigger objection that you have... Not just to private education, not just to elitist universities, but a whole, really a whole ideology about, yeah. you know, picking children early as winners, yeah. a tiny minority, and sort of plucking them out yeah. and putting them into this fast track. But for the rest of them, well, you know, they didn't have it. And so they're just they, consigned they, they to... They weren't bridge material. No, it's
0: a technocratic dream. It's the meritocratic dream that... If only society was run by the clever people, everything would be okay and our job is to find the clever people. So next week, on Monday, in that marquee down there and in every other hall of this university and every college, the head of house will stand up and will tell us that a set of freshly minted 18-year-olds that they're here not as fraud and it is not a mistake they're here they're here because we have specially chosen them because they are the best of the best the creme de la creme and they mustn't forget that when they're having self-doubt they must always remember that they are the best of the best
1: would you sort of grind your teeth and no i did grind my teeth the first and second
0: year it's when i realized in the third year that in fact it's a script and the words were so similar it was quite quite remarkable Uh, and i also think that and i've heard it in more than one college i've heard his speech so often i think i think the masters are saying it to themselves as well i think it's part you know i can get through this academic year because i am so good and the fact that i'm having to deal with actually some quite awful things going on with some funders and something else and it looks like it could all fall apart don't worry because you know i too went to oxford cambridge so i must be the best of the best and i can get through so it's kind of self-sustaining myth it's also, and to be fairer, there's always, as in every university, a huge fear about poor mental health. And one problem about going to any elite university not it's not just Oxford and Cambridge, it's badly enough ones is that the very process by which we have examined children every year and propelled them to here puts enormous pressure on them, and there, there is a understandable paranoia about the, what's in the minds of the children. And so we tell them they're special partly because we don't want them to think, I shouldn't be here. And it, then you can see that that's... Um, personally, I would like us to move to a normal European university system where you have none of this pressure and you go to university in your city. It's a terrible thing to do to teenagers. That's just my personal view about all of this, but we're obviously not going to get there that quickly in England.
1: And I guess I guess the fear is, if that were to come about, that the, that the average would be sort of squashed down and instead of a, a triangle with Oxford and Cambridge at the apex... Yeah everything would sort of level down and become yeah, amorphous way, and, and
0: you'd be like i don't know germany and that'd be terrible because what kind of economy would you have if you're germany <laughs> when it all you know um that 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 is the fear and to try i mean this is why i just don't bother to try to imagine that this university would take in from the children of oxfordshire and only the children of oxfordshire i mean it is just so unthinkable but the irony is when you actually look at the old buildings you can't turn them into old age people's homes. You can't use them for anything else. In fact, they're only suitable for relatively fit 18, 19, and 20 year olds. So, whatever happens is that it actually has to be used. When I was a child in Oxford, I had in my mind, you know, after the revolution, when the young ones have taken over comedy, this should become trade union headquarters. And the biggest trade union should get all souls and so on. But actually, there's a useless
1: buildings for that. They're they're useless for anything other than relatively fit young people. They're useful for making a statement, aren't they? They're useful for saying something about the university's self-image and self-belief. That's what they're they're good at.
0: Well, I mean, they're they're great as a tourist attraction. I mean, this country is going to have to get more tourists and rely on tourists. They're not bad as a tourist attraction. We could let them in. There's gates down there. We could open them, we should have cream teas on tables in the a far better reliable source of income than Russians who want to clean their names. The statement seems funny because what people see are the back walls. You know, as a child, a few things I actually saw were the back walls. I never saw inside, I never saw the gardens and, and all of that. Last weekend was an alumni weekend and one of the alumni talks was um, celebrating the donors who had made certain buildings possible over the last two or 300 years. And you just read the names of the donors and I knew where the plantations were and and nobody ever says, let's celebrate the slaves of Barbados for All Souls Library, you know, cheer. And you could take almost every building because the empire's been going on for so long. There's only a tiny number of buildings that predate it. And you could actually work out where in the world did the labour come from that paid for that particular building? Where was the billion pounds made that paid for the five million pound building you may be sitting in? And who did all the work. And you could create a map of Oxford in which you showed all round the world how the spoils of expropriating money have ended up as this kind of set of tombstones. It's it's nothing to feel guilty about. If it hadn't been England had been a Harvard Empire it would have been somewhere else. And that somewhere else would have a university built out of stone that it tried to pretend was eight hundred years old. In fact most of it was just, you know, a hundred or two hundred years old. But given that we shouldn't be stupid and that we should know that's where we are we should be doing more of it than trying to keep on a myth that somehow this is a medieval thing rather than an empire university
1: well, you've given me a really nice segue because you said you could you could make a map. You're a geographer, you're not an economist, you're not a political scientist, obviously your work intersects very much with all those things. Tell me about using geography as your lens and cartography some of the time in order to tackle some of these questions in ways that perhaps the economist or the political scientist couldn't or, or wouldn't? What is, what is it that geography is kind of bringing to illuminate some of these questions about inequality that your that your recent book focuses on?
0: Well, geography is rarer. I mean, there's other subjects that exist around the world, whereas, in fact, there are, there are more geographers in the UK and USA than anywhere else. It's a very Anglo-centric subject. For instance, for political scientists, if you draw maps of how people voted in the Brexit referendum, you see something very different to the models they produce. They produce models, and their models tell them that it was slightly less skilled people and older people who voted for Brexit. If you draw the map, um, you actually discover it's the home counties. And the two things are both true, but the map forces you to see things or recognise things that you might not otherwise have wanted to accept. And um, Because geographers are few and far between, the dominant story of Brexit is... Sunderland, Stoke-on-Trent, Great Yarmouth, and so on. That's because not enough people have looked at the map. The the map is truly, truly remarkable. It it keeps you grounded and it lets you see the connections between different things. So, if you're looking at maps of people's health, you can also look at maps of how well they do educationally. You see the things related and you spot when occasionally you get a difference. A good example might be when we're looking at infant mortality, Great Ormond Street had the worst rate. For obvious reasons, not because it's a terrible hospital, because it attracts parents whose babies are in a terrible state. And that means that Holborn Borough has the highest infant mortality rate in the country. As long as you know that Great Ormond Street is there, you can explain that. And these things are exceptions, but in in general, you'd be surprised how often it is useful to know about geographical patterns to study other things. And often, other people, geneticists are my favourite at the moment have big data sets of which they have some small components which are geographical and that you see them making assumptions about what their equations are finding and it's not their fault but they have no idea you know, that what these geographical things mean is not what they assume they
1: mean. Was this kind of new way of looking at data and political questions was this what got you fired up about geography in the first place or were, did you come in a maybe a more conventional route and was, therefore was a sort of moment when you thought ah actually you can get some purchase and some quite knotty problems through geography can okay, I mean, it's conventional
0: my granddad was a geography teacher who went to the school of geography here in oxford you know i'm not that revolutionary that got me you near know, heels desperate i did geography Uh, He also wanted me to come to the School of Geography in Oxford, which I only did later in life, not as an undergraduate. That's how I got into geography. I also did maths. What got me really fired up was doing a PhD on computer visualisation in 1989, with the very first computer screen so you could actually see what you're drawing, rather than a plotter. Just timing. I was there when the first 1,980 papers were published in that year on visualisation and computer graphics and social science and was just riding the wave of this was utterly and completely new and we'd never seen this before because there was no way you could see it uh, before. And it was the time of drawing Mandelbot sets and so on. And I can remember drawing an image of 100,000 areas with a tiny coloured dot for each area and realising that I was the first person in the world who'd ever seen anything like that. and um, You can't help but get fired up and so I did that for quite a long time and if you do it for quite a long time you end up drawing maps of how these things are changing and this is from the 1971 census to 81 to 91 through and in hindsight didn't realize it at the time we were always hopeful always thinking oh some things will get better you know but the country polarized and polarized and polarized quite dramatically and there comes a point and that's partly why I now write more about inequality and polarisation. Partly. That you know, 50 years old and advanced computer graphics is, is
1: really a young person's game. I mean, it's a really good way of making points and seeing patterns, you know, from the producer's part of view of, of producing or, you know, seeing patterns, but from the consumer, you know, the person who's looking at it in a book or on or online, of actually conveying things which would be much more complex and difficult, perhaps, to Obviously. convey using, using a description. Yes. You can, people can... And I guess they... You're inviting them also to interpret things for themselves yeah. you know to make to make sense of what they're seeing and go oh that's that looks really there's a real discrepancy there or that looks really unfair yeah. um, and you're making it visual so you're not you're not hitting them over the head but you're that lying a degree of honesty about it in, a, in, a, in i can write
0: three pages of words where i say this is how the world is and i might well believe my three pages but if i'm forced to actually put a map or a diagram in the based on actual data you know, okay, you can change the scales and other things, but really, you know, if it's not there, you can't make it be there.
1: So, looking looking at the book, Danny, is there a particular graph in the book that you think, wow, that really shows what what you can do with this kind of data, and also speaks to your big theme about widening inequality in the UK? Uh, this
0: this not widening inequality, but it's really important. This this, okay. w- this
1: one here is. Uh,
0: Changing world population a year since 1800. I haven't got my glasses, but I think it is. This is when the British Empire is beginning of its height, the 1820s. And this enormous acceleration from when we had a billion people to now around about seven. <laughs> it's entirely the period of the British Empire disrupting things all around the world. And it shows the peak around 68, 71. Population growth declining since then. And there's inset shows that the decline has accelerated. If I you know, just pick that page open at random, but... That graph is incredibly important. It's very simple. All it's doing is showing you the changing rate of growth. When it peaked in sixty-eight, seventy-one, when human population worldwide was going 2% a year, essentially it looks like game over. I mean, that, you know, that only has to come over a few more decades and you've got mass starvation everywhere. And there were a few, a tiny number of people at that point who said, this is going to end, it has to end. And we're still trying to work out the reasons why it did end. It wasn't just contraception. The main one was that, was that women around the world got powerful. Thank God, otherwise, we, the species
1: will end. That's just one graph. A lot of your maps in the colour section show London and the southeast as a big fat rump of the country. And that sort of says something that, again, it would take a lot of words and they would make the point a lot less effectively. Yes, they wouldn't.
0: I mean, it, this one here I'm looking at, um, I was quite proud of this one. We scraped data from Zoopla. This is super data from August 2016, which shows the country shaped by the very first loss of housing equity in the very first few months after the Brexit vote. And most of the equity is lost in London. But it's also coloured by the decline in the rate of sales, which fell, you know, some places a half, sometimes over a half. And you could, you could draw this, we published it in The Guardian, I think, in August 2016. And then the housing slump carried on and on and on. But the point is to draw it first with the data and say, you know, that's when it began. What's interesting, of course, about the housing slump is people still don't want to talk about it, want to pretend it isn't happening.
1: Uh, because so much is invested in it, literally and
0: metaphorically. Yes, you know, you, you actually are trapped. And what happens is that people don't sell their houses, they rent them out and move because they can't get what they think it is worth. And the irony of this, if you look at it, it's it's almost three quarters of the welfare this country is held up in the value of housing housing which the next generation can't afford to buy because their incomes are so low and so the only way it can be housed is if a tiny proportion of people buy all the houses and rent them out at huge profit to these people i can say all of that and you may think he's getting very partisan and political or i can show you a map scraped from super data and say there it is and that's when it began
1: The broad trend in terms of equality and inequality in, um, well, in the Western world, before we sort of look at, at the UK, but was increasing equality after the First World War, really up until the advent of Thatcher and Reagan. And since then, that's when things, have, that's when things began to change. But since the financial crash, I was really shocked to read that since the financial crash, things have actually gone significantly worse in, in many in many ways they did oh it's more so for most countries it began after the first world war that
0: things got better and the russian revolution had an effect for the u.s it wasn't actually until after second world war in the u.s there was no thought they could be a revolution and hence no worries about it different countries went in different directions after the end of the 70s so the uk became dramatically more unequal from 78 79 onwards thatcher accelerated it you can't see the effects of tony blair on the graph, he might as well not have been elected um, The 1% took more at the end of Tony Blair than they did at the beginning
1: uh, So that, with Thatcher is privatisation, it's a liquidation of publicly held assets and, and, and turning them private it's deregulation, it's financialisation all beginning. And,
0: and bring it beginning taking top tax rates down to 40%, which suddenly made it, it was worth your while if you were already being paid a lot to try to get your pay much higher. The, the best correlation with why does inequality rise so much in some countries not not other is how top tax rates change from the 60s till now. Countries uh, like Switzerland and Germany that kept relatively high rates of top tax haven't seen the 1% move away. Then, since the financial crash, uh, the cuts have been most savage on the poor, the middle have lost out, the bottom half of the 1% have lost out, but the CEOs carried on seeing their pay rise, and the bankers, through to 2014-15, um, the European Banking Authority tells us how many bankers in London have paid over a certain amount, then CEO pay actually fell in 2016 by an average of a million, and it rose up again in 2017, but not back up to what it was in 2015, bankers pay has carried on falling. You know, the whole argument I mean, you got, was you have to pay them this much money to keep them in London. The banks don't want to keep them in London now. They're desperately trying to get them to go out to Frankfurt and, and Paris and so on. So we are, in the, only in the last eight or nine months, beginning to see a real reduction of inequality at the very top of society. And this is before Brexit actually happens. But Brexit may well be helping this to occur, ironically.
1: And why look at the one percent when we're when we're looking at social inequality? It's almost like they live in a different planet and a different stratosphere, isn't it? Isn't it what happens at, at, at the lower echelons that really that really pinch?
0: No, tragically. For instance, Japan is one of the most equal countries in the world. It has one of the highest life expectancies. People do very well. Japan treats its bottom one percent really badly. If nobody in your family will look after you, and the, the bottom one percent are in blue tents um, and so on, tragically. I mean, I don't want to spread this, so don't, don't tell anybody else, but you can treat the very bottom 1% badly and still be a fairly decent country. What you can't do, no country in the world which gives the top 1% a lot operates well. We're giving our top 1%, 15%, a six of all income. We could have another National Health Service for the amount. Other countries give them three times less than that. It's real, real money. And if your top 1% take 15%, the next 1% underneath them take more than any other next 1% and the next 1% and before you know it your 10% is taking 40% of all income and most of the people in the the top 10% feel really hard done by and they're only just struggling. So the trick is to look at the 1% and work out how do you get the income of the 1% down. They don't lose out because they can still live in the same houses, they can still have the same cars, you know they can't have quite as many holidays but you know there's only so much time you have. Countries which give the least to the top 1%, have the best health, the best education, the lowest pollution, the best public transport. As yet, we haven't found a level you can get the 1% down to where there appears to be a negative effect. And there must be a point, but we're the furthest country from Europe there. And so far, nothing's terribly going wrong in Norway and Finland and Sweden.
1: So do you think there's a fundamental ideological difference in the way that politicians and, and those in power think in this country from those other European countries is is there a whole different attitude to to wealth to society to to duty to responsibility to what is enough to what is a good life do you think do you think all those things
0: we we are very different from everywhere else in Europe so the easiest way to think about it is to look at politicians in the United States what democratic and republican senators think is decent and how they operate with money and if you're from Britain, it can just look like an alien world in which they're all corrupt and they're all very right-wing. That is exactly how we look for mainland Europe. That is what we are. It is, I was lucky enough to once live out of the country. And after four months uh, living down in New Zealand and listening to the Today programme at 8 o'clock in the evening, which you do there, I could no longer tell the difference between the politicians of different parties. They all sounded the same. And it was a bit like um, Animal Farm, you know, when the pigs turn into men and the men turn into pigs. The Labour politicians had posh accents. People in New Zealand don't. And although in England we think we can tell these sort of subtle differences between the accents of different people, we all sound posh to people in the rest of the world. And the attitudes were all imperial and arrogant. I mean, if you want one way of reading British politics at the moment and why so many... Labour MPs were incensed by what's happening in the Labour Party. It's because essentially they had a choice they now young whether to join the Conservative or Labour Party. The two were remarkably similar. They happened to choose the Labour Party. They could have been Conservatives. The interesting thing now happening in Britain is we may, we may be getting a normal social democratic European party again. And we haven't had one for 30 years.
1: And one of your big points that runs all the way through the book is that we have kind of normalised an attitude in which basically winner takes all and if you if you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps that's your it's entirely your own fault you you know your life is yours to make and if you haven't made something of yourself then you know as we were saying earlier you're just you're just the wrong caliber of of person and your point is i think that has become normalized but it's not it's not normal it's not the way it has to be
0: it's not (laughs) normal It's, it's not normal thinking in most of the rest of europe it's also not helpful I mean, you don't tend to get to the top unless you've worked hard, but you also had to have had a huge amount of advantages and you had to have been lucky. And the main thing that people don't get is the luck involved. And you can simply be unlucky. And there's nothing you can do about being unlucky. But most people who don't quite get to the top and so on, they were unlucky. We have a denial of that. We have a model that just says, we have to make sure that we put the circumstances in place for people. We have to search out for the golden children to increase social mobility. But we don't accept that luck plays a large part in it, or that often it makes sense if two or three people make a decision rather than one superhuman, clever person. And hence, we often see very many bad decisions made in this country by the supposedly clever people, as opposed to how things are done elsewhere which are more careful, more slow, less brash, and you end up with a better solution for a much larger proportion of people, partly because... The people in charge are from that larger group of people and have basic knowledge of things like what a normal school is, what it's like to use a bus. You know, just whereas, Can you imagine trying to run Britain if you had never gone to a normal state school, if you had always been chauffeured everywhere and never used public transport, if you'd never had to worry about money at all or the idea of actually having to get a job because you have a trust fund, you don't need to get one how hard it would be to think about how most people's lives work. And if you think about that, I think it's easier to understand how our politicians have got things wrong because we're asking a strange set of people to do an almost impossible job about something they know so little about.
1: And do you think the, what seems to me like a fixation on social mobility is a way of sort of almost diverting attention away from equality? Because you can focus on outliers, you can focus on exceptions, and the great glass elevator can take you right up to the top. But the oh. distance from the, the bottom to the top can be getting higher all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is why we got a Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission. It was because we were not that bothered about child poverty. We certainly were worried about inequality, so we're just going to get rid of poverty, we're still inequality. Inequality means that talent's being rewarded, that was the idea. They dropped the child poverty bit from it and just left social mobility in. And it excuses inequality. It says, in a sense, it's fine to have tall poppies at the top, you just have to make sure that you don't miss any good poppy seeds and get them up to the top. Because the alternative is for people who like this idea to actually say... There's nothing that special about me. It wasn't necessarily a great idea that £30,000 a year was spent on my school education. That money could have been spread over a few more people better. There's nothing that special about the fact that I went to a university made out of old stone. I could have learnt just as much in somewhere where I wasn't having a weekly meeting with a tutor, but I was actually in the library reading things. It requires enormous imagination to... Decide that the route that you went through, in which you were rewarded and told how brilliant you were every time. When you got that letter saying you'd been accepted, your parents were ever so happy, and your school was proud of you. And when you got that degree result, people said, Well done. And when you got that job and so on, they said, yeah, That's brilliant. And to look back and actually say, Actually, the country could have been run in a different way, that's really hard. And it t- maybe takes a generation. I think we have to be patient. It's another generation another generation
1: of people saying to their parents they don't necessarily want to be like them. Well, w- when you think about it, I mean, my, my children are just, go, just starting to go to university now. And when I think about the fact that they're going to be saddled with a lot of debt that I didn't come out with, that buying a house is going to be much more difficult, you know, unless something exceptional yeah. happens, that job security is probably going to be less than it was for our generation, you can see where pressure might well build up. Yeah, and what they have to work
0: out is it's in their interest to to work in an alliance with each other, not to try to be the only lottery winner, not to go, oh, this is all terribly precarious and so on, and I've got an enormous student debt. I know I try and get paid £150,000 a year (laughs) because I can only work for one of them. And hopefully, hopefully that this is where things will get better. I mean, if you want the biggest justification for it being hopeful is that the bulk of our graduates in Britain are women, And there's now lots of scientific studies that actually say women are a little bit cleverer than men, or not just a little bit. Uh, The genetic gap between people who've got some genes for being clever is 10 times smaller than the gap between boys and girls at 15. So the bulk of the country's graduates are women. We've introduced massive student debts just at the point when the bulk of women, by a group of men, thinking that's a good idea. My hope is largely based on what young women are going to demand and do and change it in the future. And I think if you look at that, it's not... So much pie in the sky uh, saying, please act in solidarity, it makes no so sense for you. A great example is, we know that the Labour Party manifesto commitment is no more student fees and loans. The minute after a Labour victory, they hopefully will soon come out with a policy that says, over the historic debt, anybody who went to university in 2012 will not pay any more back than somebody went into 11, the last year of 3,000. And anybody who goes in the year before a Labour government is elected will pay nothing back. So there's no cliff edge. You don't have to wait till Labour elected before you go to university. That seems to me to be obvious. Now, will a generation who are receiving every month their receipt on the historic debt they own with 6% interest, what are they going to vote for? What will their parents vote for? It gets to a point where it is so obviously in your own personal selfish interest to vote for a better world. Everybody is, you know, the conservatives are really going to have their, their work cut out trying to lie to 99% of the population that this, that what they want is what the 99% should vote for. I don't think I am stupidly optimistic unless maybe the imaginative people will just leave the country and we will be left with this mess. But I, I, can't, I can't see how you do it. Margaret Thatcher didn't do, didn't do it. What Margaret Thatcher did is she rewarded the top 30% of society. That's how she kept in power when elections. This government and coalition since two ten has not rewarded the top third. They've only
1: rewarded part of the top one percent. You're talking about, you know, talked about sort of a generational change, and perhaps that's that's a sort of timescale in which we have to think. But housing is is really a is really a pressing problem now, isn't it? I mean, what do you think? What do you think the, the main levers are that need to be pulled okay. quickly? Well,
0: Quickly, there's amazingly good news. So what has not happened is bombing from the Luftwaffe or a tsunami. All the housing is there, and it's key to understand that. What will not help is immediately building a huge amount. All that happens is people who can afford to buy that will buy it and you'll have more landlord-held property. Landlords increased their wealth by £400 billion since 2010. What you need to begin to do is work out how to get people to fit better into the housing that there is. So you allow people to sell. You have a right to sell, like the right to buy, so that if you can't pay the mortgage, you can you can sell your home or your flat and become a tenant. When you're a tenant, when you move out, that becomes part of social housing. That social housing is then allocated on the basis of need. So if you happen to be in a maisonette in London on your own with a mortgage and you sell it to the council and become a tenant, when you leave, move out that maisonette will be given to a family with two children and suddenly you've got four people in the maisonette rather than one. That is by far the most efficient single thing that can be done. Then there is a little bit of building and there will be more in the future because property only lasts about 150 years the way we build it. You've got to have a generation realise that the house prices may have peaked. And by peaked, I mean peaked, properly peaked. As in peaked Tokyo 1989 peaked, or peak Amsterdam 1760 peaked. And we shouldn't see that as a terrible thing. If you have a really, really kind of lucky and deaf Chancellor of you should hope for 1% house price falls every year for the next 30 years. That should be the target. Getting our house prices down to the average German level, roughly half what they are now, and nobody in their right mind would ever speculate again on housing.
1: You, I think you wrote quite a lot of these pieces, Danny, before Brexit and before Trump are around, around, sort of on the cusp. There's a certain note of optimism in the book. Would it be less optimistic if you'd written the book, you know, 18 months later? No, because I'm I'm stuck with optimism. It's just
0: me. And it's a bias. And it's a kind of wrong, obviously, in hindsight, you know, (laughs) it's a wrong bias, but I am just an optimistic person. The the advantage of Trump is it is much, I don't have to explain to audience anymore that America has problems. All these graphs haven't altered. It's the same data from a few years ago. America is a great outlier. Um, but I know before I used to, people would say, but America's doing so well in other ways. You know, okay, it's there, but you know, surely that's just black Americans. People actually said that. You know, that's just black Americans dragging them down. Trump means that that's all gone. And when I put up these dark bubbles of the world and America looks bad, everybody accepts it looks bad. But also, hopefully, Americans will begin to realize that. The situation they were in and their choice between a fairly standard, bog standard, you know, Hillary and Donald wasn't enough of a choice and getting out of it is a generational thing. In a way Obama was kind of lovely but he didn't do that much. It was kind of lovely kind of show and decoration. Similarly Brexit, in hindsight, and I voted remain, would like remain, but this is a pretty good outcome. The alternatives were maybe 66% vote to remain, but that wasn't going to happen. Any less than that, and Nigel Farage and co would have carried on, and we'd be looking at the second or third referendum to leave. Any stronger leave vote, and there wouldn't be much debate about what kind of Brexit we're going to have, 52-48 is just about spot on in hindsight. It calls a bluff for the Conservatives. It calls a bluff for those people I've had to live with for 25 years who have constantly written that immigration is a problem and it makes the country worse. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? And kind of, I'm it's, I'm sounding flippant because it's awful for families having to deal with the racism involved in this. Um, but we are about to find out how we deliver babies in London without a third of the midwives that we had last year.
1: You're also talking about a living experiment whose results are not probably not going to be very good. OK, the, the nearest equivalent,
0: and it's nothing like Brexit, is is um you know national embarrassment but out of series eventually we got the 60s and they generally were interesting and they were about even more reduction in inequality and less deference to the rich and the powerful if you thought that all political parties eventually have to die they all have a shelf life they can only live for so long well what could bring about the demise of the conservative party in its current form and this is about as good as it gets if you thought that the british class system and having to put your knife and fork the right way around was a bit annoying. And it's about time we got rid of the British class system. What kind of thing would be likely to make people less happy about the British class system? If you thought there was a problem with us having 7% of people going to private schools and very expensive public schools, what is more likely to make it hard to actually afford to keep running those than this? And you can go on. I'm being ridiculously optimistic. But this brings things to a head Uh, far faster than those who'd wanted this actually planned for. If you looked at Boris Johnson and Michael Goh's face on the morning of the day of the result, they clearly did not expect or want that and had some inkling that they'd won something they hadn't intended to win, at least at that point.
1: All that accepted, it seems to me that, that that our nation's face is still turned towards America. We still look towards America and American values and American dream albeit through the sort of historical, Mm post-colonial British lens, which adds a certain, you know, damaging dimension of its own. It seems to me that to turn that and to look at a a European social democratic model, for which there's a lot of contempt, I think, Mm -hmm. but that's essentially what you're sort of saying, let's, you know, we will all be happier, even the rich, if we're a bit more like the Europeans and a bit less like the the Americans who are ready and waiting at the door, you know, to increase privatisation of health, to deregulate food standards and all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, we were so wedded to the Americans. You know, Gordon Brown would go every holiday um, to America. We got magnet schools in effect. We got gifted and talented. we just pick up proposal after proposal from the United States and implemented them here. And that is Gordon Brown on what was the left of the Labour Party. There was no alternative to America. Um, Suddenly, you begin to see that America isn't quite so bright, now, even Jeremy Corbyn is not turning around and looking that clearly at Scandinavia, mean, you know, that, that's ahead. But the Dutch are not that different from us, the Germans are not that different. I, I think it's ridiculous to think you can go from being at the bottom of the class in Europe to the top. You should aim towards trying to be in the middle in 30 years. It's not a very ambitious aim, but it might be a, a practical aim. Uh, we're in within about eight years of neonatal mortality rates in England being worse than Romania. People shouldn't think too much that Eastern Europe is that terrible compared to the average life of the average person uh, in England. But it's a big, big adjustment to take. They won and we lost. The mainland got it right and we didn't, which is why we're now some of the poorest people in Western Europe. And it's got nothing to do with the EU because they're all in the EU. It's all about the core beliefs and behaviour of people within these countries. And they, in most other European countries, had a great advantage of not having been the centre of the world's largest empire. It's not our fault, but it's about time we learnt. It's about time we did something about it, rather than hoping that we can go back to 1901 again.
1: I was talking to Danny Dorling about his book Peak Inequality, Britain's Ticking Time Bomb. It's published by Policy Press an imprint of Bristol University Press. You can find out more about it on their website and also check out Danny's own website, dannydarling.org. If you've enjoyed this programme, visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time... Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.